going to help engage our minds with a key word for this morning, and then we're going to pivot right back. So watch this video. There's a key word in here that's going to help us think about the scripture this morning. I know you think people are going to be interested in this, but they're not. I've probably been working on this for two years. Two years? I mean, usually I write a bit in a couple days. It's a long time to spend on something that means absolutely nothing. But that's what I do. That's what people want me to do, is spend a lot of time uh, wastefully, so that then I can then waste their time. Now, I don't know if that's quite the way you would think about comedy, uh, that someone would spend time wastefully to then turn around and, and waste your time. So whether or not it's a waste to devote two years to developing a comedy bit so that you can, in turn, waste your own time watching that comedy bit, I'll kind of leave you to, to decide that on your own. But here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. It doesn't matter if you're a teenager, if you're a young adult, if you're facing a midlife crisis, if you're at retirement, if you're near the end of your life, we all face this question of, Lord, I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to look back on my life and regret what I've given myself to. This last week, I passed another birthday. Birthday makes you be a little bit reflective and think, Lord, what am I giving my life to? Am I wasting this that you've given me? Am I, am I living for what matters? Am I living for your kingdom? As we talk about this question of what it looks like not to waste your life, you can search on Google like I did this last week and type in how not to waste your life, and you can find a lot of different articles and a lot of different videos about that. But hear me out this morning. We're not going there for the answer. When we talk about how not to waste your life, we have scripture in front of us as we go through the Gospel of Matthew that deals with that question in particular. And here's the deal. How do I not waste my life? It's very simple. You pour out your life for the one who poured out his life for you. How do I not waste my life? I pour out my life for the one who poured out his life for me. And the way we're going to get to that conclusion, the way we're going to reach that idea of how not to waste our life, is we're going to take these verses this morning and you kind of have to think about them as a frame. We're going to look at the opening verses and the closing verses, and they provide two foundations that keep all of this from being a motivational speech or just how to live a better life because we didn't come here for that purpose. So we're going to, we're going to get these two frames. We're going to get these two foundations. And then in the middle section of verses, it shows us how we respond, how we live. So here's what we're going to do. Verse 1, let's get those two frames in place and then we're going to say, God, help me not to waste my life. I want my life to count for something. Verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That phrasing at the beginning there where it says that when Jesus had finished all these sayings, you can track your way back through the Gospel of Matthew and you can set, find that same phrase five times because Matthew has five core teaching sections spread throughout the Gospel and they always end with this similar phrase. The only word that is added here that's not found in the other places is the word all. 
It's Matthew's way of saying, and now all of Jesus' teaching has been completed, and we're moving into a new section. So we completed these teaching sections, and now we're moving to the death of Christ. We're moving to the end of this gospel. You know, he says here, after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. There are a lot of historical questions about the Passover and the crucifixion. What we're going to do with those historical questions is we're going to spend the Wednesday nights in March looking at the background, the historical background, the Old Testament background, talking about details related to Passover and timeline and things like that. So if that's of interest to you and you want to stay up to date with those podcasts that come out of Wednesday night teaching, that's where we're going to focus most of that material. What I want you to see this morning, though, is that as Jesus approaches his death, he is going into an event that has been planned by God. This will happen. He is talking about a prediction of something that will come to pass. This is not accidental. This is not random. Jesus is living within and even carrying out the plans of God here. The reason that's important is because you have to see the contrast in verses 3 to 5. So Jesus is carrying out the plans of God that are in place. Look at verse 3, though. In contrast, the chief priest and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. Previously, Jesus has debated with the Pharisees, kind of the lay people, legal experts here. Now he's moved to the higher officials, the ones who really have some power over him. Now they're at work here. Verse 4, what happens? These people got together because they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Irony there, they're actually going to cause the uproar among the people. Jesus has come to bring peace. He has kept his disciples away from causing a riot. These religious leaders, or these, these higher political leaders, they're the ones that are going to cause the trouble leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. But what you see here is this contrast between Jesus' simple, peaceful obedience to the way of God, to the plans of God, and this other group that has this complicated, scheming plan going off to the side about how they can work against what's happening. Now, with that in mind, jump down to verse 17, because you see this same idea repeated a little bit further along. We're going to come back and get the other verses in a minute. We want to put this frame in place first. So get down to verse 17. Again, Passover is mentioned. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, this festival that involved Passover, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said in verse 18, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. That little story there, that little snippet within the story, it feels a lot like what the disciples do at the beginning of Matthew 21 when Jesus sends them ahead to, to get the donkey that he's going to use to enter into the city. What you find here is the disciples are participating in a plan that God has already set into action. God's at work here. Jesus is carrying out these plans, and he's involving his disciples in what's happening. Again, it's the plan of God at work. Verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. 
And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you will work against these plans. One of you is going to hand me over to be crucified. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Listen to this phrase at the beginning of 24. This is core Matthew theology here. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, Mo, or not Moses, uh, Matthew loves to use that as it is written or as the scripture says or the scriptures will be fulfilled. Again, what's he doing here? It's another indication that these plans that are happening, these activities that are happening, they've been set in motion by God. God's plans are being carried out, and yet there's going to be someone in the story that's going to seek to work against the plans of God, seeking to go against the direction that God's plans are going. Then, verse 25, Judas who betrayed him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Foundation number one for this morning. Foundation number one for this morning. We have to understand this for our lives. This is not theoretical. This is not I was trying to make up another slide. This is foundation for our life. Do we trust the plans of God? Because in this story, you have the sovereign plans of God at work, and on the other side, you have this group of people that are scheming in the background trying to work against the plans of God. And so we have to settle in our own lives. When I think about the foundation for my life, when I think about these pegs that we're driving in the ground, one of those pegs you have to drive in the ground for your life is, I trust God. I'm going to work with God and for God according to his plans and not seek to work against him, not seek to manipulate, to live in the background, to live in the darkness. I trust him because how we think about God, what we think about God will determine how we live, will determine how we respond when bad things come in life, will determine what we do when people seek to draw us to go a different direction. And so what I'm asking you to do this morning is the first key to not wasting our lives is to throw a peg in the ground and say, yes, I trust in the plans of God. He is God, I am not, I'm going to submit to him. One of the things we're gonna do after Easter is we're going to devote a series of sermons to thinking about the question, who is God? We have to determine that for our lives, we have to determine that for our church, and so we're gonna spend several weeks after Easter just dealing with this question, who is God and what does it look like for him to be at work in the world? So that's number one. That is the first foundation we have to determine in our lives. Do I trust him? Am I willing to submit to his plans? Now watch what happens as his plans are carried out. Verse 26. This is the second foundation. This is the second peg we're, we're going to drive in the ground. As they were eating, verse 26, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said take eat this is my body what's going on here is they are participating in the passover meal the passover celebration we're not going to do a ton of background material this morning but i want you to see a couple of things about the passover that are helpful for remembering what's going on at this point 
the Passover meal would not have been a new thing to these guys. They would have participated in this type of ritual before. The Passover commemorated, looked back to the way that God had rescued the people out of Egypt, and he had established them, he had made them his people, and this is what it looks like to remember what God has done, but also to look to the future about what God is going to do to continue to rescue his people. And it was the type of meal where whoever the father was, whoever the leader of the home was, would guide this meal, and when you got to different elements of the meal, you would explain what was going on at that point. So as you took the bread, or as you took the the bitter herbs that were involved, when all these elements of the meal were happening, whoever was leading the meal would describe or would explain what was happening. So what's Jesus doing here? This meal that the disciples are participating in they should be participating in this with their own biological family. But here, Jesus has gathered them around because what's been happening in the Gospel of Matthew? He has been forming a new family. He has been forming a new family around himself, saying, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Those who do the will of God. Those who turn to me as the one that God has sent to bring salvation. And so Jesus is establishing this meal for his family. He's carrying it out the way a father would for his children. And he's explaining the elements. Except now, what does the bread mean? The bread means this is my body. And then it carries on in verse 27. Not only the body that would be given for you, broken for you, but verse 27. He took a cup and when he had given thanks... He gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. At Jesus' birth, he was named Jesus because he would come to provide forgiveness of sins for God's people. This was the purpose of his life, and now it's coming to fruition here. He's going to come, and he's going to provide forgiveness of sins. And how is it going to come? It's going to come through his blood that is poured out for the people. When you see a verse like this, Old Testament fireworks are just exploding around a verse like this. Because what Jesus is doing is he's not just randomly coming up with this idea at this point. This has been the work of God. This has been the plan of God coming to this point. I want to give you a couple of Old Testament background here to see what Jesus is doing with his teaching. Exodus 24, verse 8 is our first place to look. Exodus 24, 8. Moses took the blood. He's establishing God's covenant with the people, and he threw it on the people. Now just think about that for a second. We read Bible passages, and we just go to the next page. If I had a bowl of blood up here and I started throwing it out, not going for that, are you? Yeah, like that, just that imagery, even thinking about what it looks like to be, to be covered by the blood. We went to uh, the uh, SeaWorld show one time where they say, don't sit here because it's the splash zone. And we're like, oh, it's not really the splash zone. They're just kind of giving you a heads up. Oh, no, it was the splash zone. So uh, the people here are in the splash zone of, of the blood. As the blood is being put out. But what's it about? Behold, the blood of the covenant. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what Jesus is doing in Matthew 26. The blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Isaiah 53. 
really Isaiah 52 and 53, this whole section about the servant of God who would come to give himself for the people. Isaiah 53, 12, the Lord's servant poured out, ah, poured out, that's exactly what Matthew 26 is all about, poured out his soul, his life to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of the many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. What did Jesus do in establishing the covenant? He bore our sins. He poured out his life in order to take our sins, to make us clean. Next verse, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is about looking ahead to the new covenant that God would make with his people. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, look at this next phrase, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Remember, that's the first Passover. That's the first covenant that's established. But when you go to the next verse on the next screen, this is the new covenant that I will make. I will write my law on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the work that Jesus is doing. He is bringing this new covenant. He's bringing this time that the sins of the people will be forgiven by his blood, by his life that is poured out. So what does he do in verse 29? If you go back to Matthew 26, what does he say in verse 29? He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He is telling them that everything that God has planned is about to come into fulfillment. And then one day, what he is doing with his death is not going to end with his death. He's already talked about his resurrection. He's already talked about the future hope that they have. And he's pointing them to the future. He's saying that when you see me die, that is not the end of the story. That the hope that you have for forgiveness is going to come through my death, but now he's pointing them beyond that. He's saying that's not the end of the story. There's going to be a resurrection, and there's going to be a future. And he puts in here, in verse 29, this phrase, I will drink it with you. What does the name Emmanuel mean that is given to Jesus early in Matthew's gospel? It means God with us. What is Christmas all about? God with us. How does Easter happen? God with us. What is our hope for the future? God with us. How does that happen? Because Jesus gave himself for us. He died for us in our place. Here's the second foundation for your life. It's Jesus' sacrifice. It's the gospel. It's the difference between him giving his life versus someone else trying to take his life. Our hope, so remember that first foundation, that first peg that you drive in the ground, it's I trust in God's plan. The second foundation, the second peg you drive in the ground is I believe in Jesus. I believe that his death did for me what I could never do for myself. There are two problems in life that we cannot deal with on our own, sin and death. No matter what you do, you can never make up for your sin, and no matter what you do, you can never avoid the reality of death. And Jesus dealt with both of those. He died so that our sins can be forgiven. He died and rose again so that death has no power. 
The question is, do I believe in that? That God's plans have been set in motion. They're brought to fulfillment through Jesus. Jesus gathers his people together to remember that as they take of the Lord's Supper, as they gather together for worship to say, this is the foundation for my life. How do I not waste my life? I trust in God's plans and say, yes, I believe you. I'm going to live for you and with you. And I turn over here and say, and I believe my only hope is because of the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Those things will hold my life together. If that's true, if I say, yes, I believe in God's plans, yes, I believe in the sacrifice of Jesus for me, those things hold my life together, here's the question. What's my response to that? To get that, you've got to jump back to verse 6. If you jump back to verse 6, how do you live if those things are true? How do you live if you trust God's plans and you're committed to the way of Jesus? What does that look like? Verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. Insert your own essential oils joke in there. I'm not going to make them so I don't get emails this week, all right? So that's for you to make your own joke at this point. But a woman came up with him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. This ointment would have come from India. It was a very, very expensive ointment and was primarily involved in uh, anointing a body at, at the time of death, and so it has a lot of significance related to that. We're going to see here in a second. But look at what happens in verse 8. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. They were, they were frustrated with her. They're, frankly, they're, they're just being prideful and ignorant at this point, but they're indignant, saying, why this waste? And then they sound, sound very pompous and spiritual at this point. For this could have been sold for a large sum, and given to the poor. Don't miss how incredible this is. Number one, sometimes the Bible is portrayed as a little bit chauvinistic and, and anti-female, and I know those portrayals come across. As we've studied through the Gospel of Matthew, it's incredible how Matthew explodes those ideas. So often in Matthew, a woman is put up as an example of faith over against a man who is supposed to be the religious figure but comes across really badly. Again, here's this lady leading the way in what it looks like to have active faith in Jesus. And specifically, she pours out this very extravagant display of worship and devotion to Jesus. And what do the disciples call it? What did the men in the room call it? They say, what a waste. Many times, people around you will look at your devotion to Jesus and they will say, what a waste. Your devotion to Jesus, your worship of him will look like a waste to the world. You could have done so much with your money. You could have done so much with your job. You could have done so much with your family you could have done so much. You could have really been something or gone somewhere or accumulated things, but you wasted it on Jesus. Is it a waste? No, it's not. It's seen as a waste. Man, your career, you could have really made some money. 
your family, you could have gone a lot easier route if you had not done that in your family and done what Jesus was leading you to do. Devotion to Jesus often looks like a waste to the people around you, but it's not. It's worth everything you have to give. Look at the response that Jesus gives right here. Jesus, aware of this, and probably boiling inside about what's just happened, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. This feels like a little bit of one of those Mary Martha situations. It's not that, we're going to find out here in a couple minutes, it's not that care for the poor is a bad thing, using money to care for In fact, it's a very good thing. The problem is their priorities. They have missed the most important thing, devotion to Jesus that will then lead to care for the poor. But what matters right now is what Jesus has come to do with his death, and this woman gets it. Verse 12, in pouring this ointment on my body, Jesus gives the explanation, she has done it to prepare me for burial. She understands what's happening here. She gets it, whereas you guys don't. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, this good news of my death is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done, her display of devotion, her display of worship, her trust in me, her, her hope in the death of Jesus, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And then look at the contrast in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. What's the woman's story characterized by? How much she can give. What's Judas's story characterized? What he can get. Our response to God and our response to his gospel message is very simply, is my life going to be characterized by what I can give for him, the way I pour myself out, the way I devote myself wholeheartedly to him? Or is my life characterized by the little bit I can gain and try to hold on to? The people say that the woman has wasted her life and Judas has gained these 30 pieces of silver. But what's the irony? Who really wasted their life in this situation? It's Judas. Judas is the one who's wasted his life. He's come away with a little bit more money than he had before, but he's lost his soul. This woman has given everything that she has. She's shown this devotion, and she has gained life, and life eternal. What does it look like not to waste your life? It's to pour your life out for the one who poured out his life for you, that this is what I'm going to give myself. This is what I'm going to devote myself to. The Wednesday night before Easter, and then all day Thursday of that week, of Holy Week leading up to Easter, one of the things we do here at Emmaus is we take this worship center area, and we put up decorations uh, all around the worship center to kind of let you walk through the Holy Week story. This is completely stolen from our friends at Henderson Hills Baptist Church in Edmond, which Josh and Millie connect back to. But it's this beautiful display of where you walk through these Holy Week remembrances, and one of the things that people always tell me after they go through that, and I hope you'll go through it this year because it's, it's a powerful opportunity of worship. One of the things that they always tell me after they go through is when they get to the station where you hold the little pieces of money 
that Judas would have gained in return for betraying Jesus, they come out and they say, those pieces of money seem so weak and so worthless and so unimportant. But do you know how quick we are to waste our lives on things that are temporary? To waste our lives on things that just don't matter very much, that are ultimately worthless? How do we not waste our lives? We give ourselves fully and completely to Jesus. We pour ourselves out for him. That's what we're going to devote ourselves to. Now here's something I want you to see the way this works. Earlier, Jesus said you will always have the poor with you. And at that point, he's quoting Deuteronomy 15. Let me show you a couple of verses from Deuteronomy 15 to get an idea of what Jesus is doing here. At the end of every seven years, so Jesus is quoting a verse that's going to come out of Deuteronomy 15, but we're getting kind of the background here. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. This is the manner of the release, this idea of forgiveness, this idea of freedom. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. So if somebody owes you money, you say, canceled. You're forgiven. That debt is released. Look at the next set of verses up here from verses 7 and 8. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him. We talk a lot about living open-handed here at Emmaus. Like, that's what we want to do with our lives. Open your hand to him. Lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And then here's where Jesus' verse that he quoted in Matthew 26 comes from. There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, go on about your life however you want. Nope. <laughs> Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. In this story, is Jesus opposed to caring for the poor? Absolutely not. We just read at the end of Matthew 25 how he says that's one of the indicators of those who are my people, that they do this exact thing. The problem is when you seek to do that apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus. You do it simply because that becomes your main priority versus no, that the stakes in the ground are I trust in the plans of God and I believe in the sacrifice of Jesus. That's where my hope is. And when those stakes are in the ground, how do you live your life? You live your life in generosity to the poor. You live your life giving forgiveness to the people around you. You give your life giving it away because that's what Jesus has done for you. And ultimately, you live your life so that that gospel message will be spread to people in all places. So here's my question for you this morning. I want us to feel the weight of the world that we live in, okay? Feel the weight of that stupid black rectangle in your pocket or in your purse. Feel the weight of what you do during the week and how you spend your time. Feel the weight for a second. And feel the weight of how close we can come to wasting our lives. How close we can come to living for things that simply do not matter. Things that will not last. And determine, you know what I'm going to put in the ground? I'm going to put a stake in the ground that says, I trust in the plans of God. And another stake in the ground that says, my only hope is through Jesus. And when those are in the ground, I'm going to pour out my life. This is not my own to begin with. I'm going to pour it out for the one who poured out his life for me. 
I'm going to be generous. I'm going to be forgiving. I'm going to be loving. I'm going to do everything I can to spread the hope of Jesus to the entire world. That's what we're going to give our lives to. And the way we're going to begin that process this morning is we are going to participate in this act of worship that Jesus set into motion with his disciples. We're going to gather and we're going to receive the bread and the cup. This bread that was given for us, the body of Jesus given for us, there's our hope. The cup, the blood of Jesus poured out to establish us as the people of God. So then we are sent out to live for him. The way we do this here at Emmaus is here in just a minute. These plates are going to be passed around. If you're a follower of Jesus, don't do this because, say, if I do it, then God will love me more, and yet you've never dealt with your own relationship with the Lord. If you have questions about faith, the moment this final song is finished and people leave, come and find us here at the front. We want to talk to you about your relationship with the Lord. But as these plates come around, this act of worship, take those two cups out together. Hold on to them. We're going to have verses going on the screen that you can reflect on. And then we're going to worship together. Let me pray for us. After I pray, if you're helping with the Lord's Supper, move immediately to those tables and begin to pass the plates. You don't need to wait on my indication. Just move to those places. Let me pray for us right now, and then we're going to have this time of worship. God, we don't want to waste our lives. We believe that life is a gift from you. We've celebrated that this morning by by thinking about adoption, by thinking about foster care and the sanctity of human life and what it looks like to value life. And if we claim to be a people who value life, we don't want to be a people who waste life. And we believe that when we live according to your plans, we believe that when our hope is in Jesus, that our only response is to pour out our lives for you, to be generous people, to be open-handed people, people open with our homes, open with our resources, open with our lives, people who are known as forgiving toward others, and people whose commitment is to see the gospel spread to the whole world. And God, right now, as we take of the Lord's Supper, let that be our focus. If this is true, if we are celebrating this together, Help us to see where this leads when we leave this room. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.